Just a reminder that Stats and Stories is running its data visualization contest to celebrate its 300th episode. You can grab data about the show to analyze and submit your entry at statsandstories.net slash contest. Your entry has to be there by June 30th. By the end of March, Education Week had reported that 13 school shootings had already taken place in the U.S. this year. That's coming off of 2022, which saw 51 school shootings, the most since Education Week started tracking them in 2018. As communities recover and victims heal, experts, educators, and parents all search for ways of preventing gun violence in schools. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guests today are Nancy Lavine and Alexis Piquero. Lavine is the director of the National Institute of Justice. She's a nationally recognized criminal justice policy expert and former nonprofit executive whose expertise ranges from policing and corrections reform to reentry, criminal justice technologies, and evidence-based criminal justice practices. Piquero is the director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics. He leads the Bureau's activities on a range of data collection on matters related to crime and justice. Piquero is a nationally and internationally recognized criminologist with more than 25 years of experience. Last year, they authored a column in the Tampa Bay Times about school shooting prevention. So one of the reasons we invited you to join us here was to talk about some of the stuff that you've written. I mean, you, you both have gotten involved in contributing many opinion pieces, and one opinion piece that you submitted last fall w- included what we know about school safety and mass shootings. And in this column, you talked a little bit about background. And, and sadly, we've, we've had yet another. In, in recent weeks, a, a school in, in Nashville had, had a horrific outcome. Where, where young people at school, a place of, of learning and, and joy was corrupted. So, you know, I, I, what was it that when, when, you, when you were working on this piece and thinking about this, the start of school last fall, what, what were some of the things that you were thinking about when you were considering school safety and mass shootings? Well, if I can start, I just want to say, I know that technically these are called opinion pieces, but I want to be clear that there's no opinions here. All, those pieces were both grounded in um, very credible, uh, rigorous research and um, well-vetted statistics. Uh, So they they weren't our opinions, um, but they were what we have learned uh, based on our years of experience and um, leading the agencies that we lead. Well, thank you. Education Week has been tracking uh, school shootings since 2018, and, and, and they note that they have noticed a rise in these since they started tracking. Has there been a rise from what your agencies can tell in school shootings, or are we just tracking them better, or, or they are they more visible? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll jump in here first. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I think you, you correctly pointed out was, quote, unquote, things just started to get tracked. And so we don't have that prior to that particular time period to get a sense of a full range of trend. 
Second of all, there could be more attention paid to it because we, we do have a very different news cycle now and accessibility to different news sources than we certainly had as kids. And so there, there is a lot more attention paid to it. The question is, is the incidence increasing relative to what? Is it increasing to 20 years ago, 30 years ago? It is the manner in which this is happening or what types of tools, I would say weapons that people are using? Those are the kinds of questions I think, you know, when Nancy and I were thinking about that piece is, okay, there are perceptions and people make perceptions based on whether they're, they're neighbors or their media viewing habits. And the question is, what does the data show? And it's, it, it's a more complicated nuance than there was a school shooting. And so the question is, where did it occur? Did it occur on campus? Did it occur off campus? All right. Was the person uh, someone who was a, a, a former member of the school or a current member of the school? So I think when we when we look at you know these 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 figures that we see sometimes on television, and I'm not you know criticizing the reporting of because I'm a very big fan of, of media reporting, but we have to bear in mind a number is a number, but without knowing how that number is created, we need to unpack that number. That, that's precisely right. And in fact, um, what do we mean by school shootings? I think the ones that garner the most attention are the mass shootings, but we also know that you know firearms are used on in school settings. I won't say routinely, but way more often than we think when we think of just these mass shootings, which of course are the most horrific and the ones, you know, as a mother of uh, two kids who went through the school system, I can really appreciate how it doesn't even matter whether they're up or down. There's enough of them that we're all concerned and we need to do something about that. And we've, NIJ has built a pretty considerable body of evidence on school mass shootings specific to K through 12, right? That's how much research we have that we can even call the evidence in that definition of mass shooting and that definition of K through 12 schools. And, and we've learned a lot. And I think that, you know, our struggle is to get that information out into the world because it exists. And so one of the things that Alex and I want to do in these roles is really spend a lot of time on communicating, translating, and getting the data and research into the hands of people who can really make differences on the ground so that we can prevent the next school shooting and also, um, you know, mitigate the harms that occur when do people do come on school campuses with firearms. So that's really great. I mean, the, the thing that, that you're trying to give context for understanding this and, and you know, the, mm -hmm. there seems like there's lessons that are learned here, I, that, that, that you're, you've got this understanding as precursor to prevention. So, so one of the things that mm -hmm. you mentioned in, in your article was this existence of an averted school violence database. The, the fact that you have mm -hmm. been construct that you've, your organizations are involved in constructing some of these resources to understand these events mm -hmm. or, or near events as the case may be. So, so perhaps you, know, right. you could jump right to some of the, what are the, some of the takeaways that you had from looking at some of the data of these mass shooting events? Yeah, um, just to share the Averted School Violence Database is a database where school administrators, public safety officials voluntarily share information about near events. And I think that's a very important resource because we often focus on events that have already occurred and what can we discern from those. And yet, you know, learning from failure is important, but we can also learn from successes. But I, I won't say that that resource is what is the foundation for what we know about what works in preventing mass shootings in K-12 schools. In fact, NIJ has 
invested over $200 million in various school safety research initiatives in the last decade or so. So we have a tremendous volume of research and um, what we learned in particular on mass shootings in K through 12 schools is that, first of all, most people who perpetrate these horrific acts tip off their friends and family in, in some way or another, often through the social through social media. And so these friends and family members have a responsibility to report. And, you know, sometimes it's uh, fellow students, although I think more often than not, these are not school-aged people that are coming in and, and committing these crimes. So tip lines can be very helpful where you can report people anonymously. Even if it's a loved one, you might not want them to know that you're reporting them. Um, so those can be very helpful. And then there's a lot we're learning around threat assessment and the good and the bad. It's not a panacea. A threat assessment is where all the, the school team members come together, social workers, school officials, mental health professionals. And when they discern uh, students who might be prone to engage in various forms of violence or bullying, that they take a good hard look at that student, that case, um, what their circumstances are. Uh, to try to uh, intervene before uh, things escalate. The mixed bag in that is, of course, you know, these are youth. We don't want them to be inappropriately profiled. And um, there's some concern about the, the students who may be coming to the attention of school officials that might impose biases based on race, gender, et cetera. So, you know, threat assessments hold promise, um, but need to be used very carefully. Can I just add one thing and you can go back to your, your comment? And I think, you know, the, the point you make about averted is very important. And I, I'm, and I will make the point with respect to use of force. There's a, a lot of spotlight for the right reasons put on police use of force, especially when it's deadly force. But there's also a movement to also collect the, the many, many times that officers encounter a situation and never use force which is actually the great number of times when you think about the number of contacts police have based on the numbers of calls for service they have and how many times they actually end up doing something. And the question is what they end up doing. So there's a lot of now um, thinking about data collections about averted use of force. And you can learn from that. So what did the officer do in that particular interaction that led him or her to use either less force or to not use very deadly force? So we have to learn from both those negative outcomes, but just as importantly are the positive outcomes. And, you know, oftentimes when we think about, you know, the, the, the world, and I'll make an analogy here that because all of us are used to this, and, and I'm not trying to be minimalistic, but we all have, we all fly planes. Planes have accidents, but we still get on airplanes. And so we have to bear in mind, there's a lot of times pilots do things to avert an accident, and we may never hear about it because it's not routinely reported. So we have to think about both sides of that, that outcome is that sometimes things happen and then sometimes they don't happen, and we learn from both of those. Yeah, that's interesting, Alex. It reminds me of the bias we have in, in research, right? Mm -hmm. Where, um, you know, research findings that are null, um, where something doesn't have an impact, are much less likely right. to be published. It's kind of that same yeah. phenomenon, right? People, it's not as interesting to report on things that didn't go wrong. You know, people focus on those events. And I think that's similar. I did want to mention, um, if we know one thing more than anything about ways to uh, avert uh, school shootings in, in K through 12 schools anyway, it's that most of the perpetrators are getting their weapons from the home 
from a family member, they're stealing them or taking them, which really begs more public awareness around safe storage. It's a no-brainer. You, as you were talking, and I think you alluded to this a little bit with like the coverage and how we hear a lot of coverage of, you know, when a shooting wasn't stopped. But I wonder what we also hear about is like, again, like school shootings all getting sort of lumped together, right? When a school shooting happens, mm-hmm. it sort of seems to all be framed in the same way. But there does seem to be a difference between a mass shooting and, a, and one that is not. So could you talk through how your agencies define mass shooting and why that matters? Yeah, I mean, we don't, I don't define it. I don't, does BJS define mass shooting? No, we don't. Yeah. So others in the field define it, and it's typically defined by four or a mass shooting that results in four or more fatalities, but that doesn't include mass shootings where you might have three fatalities and a bunch of injuries. Um, so you're not measuring the full effect of those types of acts. And there's also different ways of measuring mass shootings, even within that four or more fatality category. There's public mass shootings, which is what we think of when you think of school shootings, but there's also private mass shootings. Those are the case of maybe the father killing the wife and kids and then turning the gun on himself. Um, And then there's mass shootings that happen in the course of other criminal events. They could be gang-related, drug-related. It could be a robbery gone wrong uh, with multiple, you know, employees at a convenience store, right? So there's, even within these definitions, there's definitions and really zeroing in on those definitions can be helpful because you don't want to develop policy around preventing one type when it's likely to play out very differently for other categories. So if, if you are going to recommend one thing that, that might be done to, to help with uh, minimizing risk into the future of these events occurring at schools, uh, what might that be? And, and since there's two of you, maybe you each get one. Well, I, t- I gave my answer already. If I w- could recommend one thing, I-, I would be education around safe storage in the home. Gun ownership in American households continues to increase. That's not going away. Oh, it's not just in the home because a lot of these guns are being stolen out of cars. Um, now, I think that most of the stealing that happens in the context of school shootings is by the individual from a family member. So it's not just a random theft from somebody's car. But still, there's so much more we can do to be responsible gun owners and keep these firearms safe. Nancy offers a, a very good preventive tactic on, you know, basically accessibility. And, you know, when things are accessible, you know, it, it increases the likelihood that they could be used in, in certain kinds of ways. For me, I would focus more on preventing why people are, why kids are picking up a gun in the first place and what motivates them to, you know, edict harm on other people. And I think that, you know, the, the more we can spend early in life on telling people there's lots of ways of solving problems, picking up a gun and hurting other people is not the, the solution for anybody at any point in time. So I remember when I was a kid, my dad, my dad used to change his oil. We were not, we were very modest growing up. And there was a, a, a brand of, of motor oil called Quaker State. Might be from Ohio. It might be from Ohio if I if I think that correctly. Quaker State used to have this logo that says you can pay me now or you can pay me later. So if we're not paying attention to eat the subtlest of signs, and we got to be careful about overpredicting, you know, and underpredicting, and it's always hard to predict human behavior and those kinds of things. But more attention to things as early as possible 
can help us identify where there are points of intervention in people's lives. You know, and I think that the, the and, and, and Nancy's, you know, not a quick solution, but what, what are the things we do? These two things are not mutually exclusive. You can do both of these and you have to do both of these. Because when that first part that I identified doesn't work or doesn't work as well, then that second part Nancy talks about can, can work really well. Right. And, and, and just to piggyback on that, because one of the things we haven't named explicitly is issues of mental health, right? Now, I want to be clear about this because this, too, is a very nuanced finding. So we know that nearly all the people who carry out these mass shootings in K-12 schools, uh, about 92% or higher of them were found to be suicidal, right? Which is, I don't know what part of the motivator that is, but that is a real finding. And a lot of these individuals experience a lot of childhood hardship and trauma. Um, So really taking the long view of this, absolutely, I agree with Alex. That said, my caveat is that doesn't mean that we should use a mental health diagnosis or as a profiling tool. That does not work at all. You know why? Because Americans have mental health issues. A lot of us do. And so we can't use that as a screener per se, but we can understand that that is a predictive factor and work to prevent and mitigate. Well, thank you both so much for being here to talk about this today. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcast, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.